seen what I did to the Egyptians, referencing what happened in the Exodus when God takes His people out of Egypt, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So He is, he is giving this to the people of Israel. He's giving this to Moses to be communicated out to the people. And listen to that language. Look what he says. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, meaning you know the powerful means by which I have pursued. And I have, look at how he says it so tenderly. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. See, he didn't just deliver the people of God. He didn't just offer them freedom so that they would kind of be able to roam the world as kind of they saw fit. No, he delivered his people. He is pursued and pursued and pursued throughout all time. He is pursuing his people. He is pursuing humanity, saying, come to me. Not just an obligatory kind of delivering them so that they can be kind of free to whatever. No, no, he is delivering them to bring them to Himself because He loves His bride. From the very beginning of the Scriptures, we see, I think about the words in Genesis 3 where, we, where Adam and Eve have sinned and then Adam is hiding and God goes and He says, where are you? Where are you? He's seeking after. Seeking after. He is the most perfect portrait of what a good husband is. God is the ordainer of marriage. God is the designer of marriage. There is a reason the, the biblical narrative is the narrative of a marriage. It's a reason that God has built marriage as this portrait for how our love relationship with Him, which by the way, is why it's so important that we follow after God's design for marriage. It's not a random thing. We don't get to fill in the blanks the way that we want to. It's a picture of a godly, good, pursuing husband and a, and, and, a, and a bride that he pursues and pursues and pursues. One husband, one bride. There's a picture of fidelity, of unity, of man and woman united together. Right? This is the picture we even see in the New Testament, this mandate to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Which really you can boil down. If you want to boil that all the way down, if you, you, you men in the room taking notes, right? Young ladies taking notes, what is leadership? What's a good husband look like? The simplest way to define that is pursuit. Pursuit in everything emotionally, relationally, sexually, every single way that, uh, that, that any pursuit can happen. The husband is initiating constantly. Honey, how are you doing? How's your soul? How's your time in the Word? How are you feeling? What's going on? When, when divides and slides and chasms start to come in a relationship, the husband should be the one who says, hey honey, I've noticed there's a gap here. Another way the pursuit looks is when the wife says, this is just a little, little side extra little nuggets for you. When the wife says, hey, I'm noticing there's this little divide in our relationship, the husband should immediately go, hey, you know what? You're right. Let's work this out. The, the pursuit is always on in a loving and good marriage, the husband 
uh, summarization of leadership is always pursuing. Always pursuing. And this is the narrative of what we see. So I want you to see this. And this is a great portrait that the Exodus illustrates. God goes in. He sends Moses and He powerfully delivers out His bride so that He can bring her to Himself. Listen, God's work is always relational. It's never just this random thing. This is, this is kind of like, oh, just what? It, no, it's to himself. So I want to see. The first thing we see is this beautiful relationship between the Holy One of Israel and specifically his bride, the people that follow after him, the people that believe upon him, the people that he has called, right? So all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he is calling out to this people. He has chosen this people and he is redeeming them, pursuing them. There's this beautiful relationship. And the, and the way that we are to understand that is marriage, a covenant. A covenant. And I, I actually went into my notes. I've done a few weddings in my day, and so I kind of went in and took a few notes from some of the services that we partake of. And this, these are some of the actual words that I read to the husband and to the wife that they, 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 they respond to. Will you love her? Comfort her? Honor and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keeping to her only as long as as you both shall live. Right? We, we say that. Every couple of the 30 plus weddings I've done, they say these words. I do. So this is the context for what we are about to embark in when we look in Isaiah. Flip with me to Isaiah 1. Now, as are many of the descriptions and the portraits we get in the prophets, and, and as are many of the love stories that we know, the beautiful, wonderful portraits of love that we get, and even some of the, 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 the harder portraits of love that we get, it is fraught with drama. The Holy One is pursuing, 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 pursuing. But the bride has some problems. The bride often gets distracted. And so I want us to have the background of this is a loving God who has lovingly pursued, lovingly chosen, and lovingly redeemed and rescued His people throughout all of time. He is the initiator. He, is, he has begun all of this. You can go back to Genesis 12 with Abram. You can look at David. You can look at all of the narrative. It is Yahweh initiating, Yahweh initiating, Yahweh initiating, and we see this prone-to-distraction bride that we find in Isaiah 1. So the first point this morning is the relationship. That's what we see. Again, this is more of a story this morning. The relationship is point one. We see the state of the relationship before we get to Isaiah is this loving union, but then we get a portrait of the second point is the violation. Let's read this here. This is Isaiah 1. I'm going to read a big chunk of Isaiah 1 here. So read with me. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 1. Just to get the background here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and the kings of Judah. There were numerous kings during Isaiah's ministry. And he is proclaiming this message from Jerusalem in Judah. And here's what he has to say to the bride, to the covenant people. These are people who are already in relationship with this Holy One of Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, 
but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughters of Zion is left. Like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the, in the uh, blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Listen to this last refrain. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We'll stop right there. So, wow, wow, a lot going on there. Basically, what we're seeing is summarized for us in verse 4. It says, Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They've forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so what we see here is the language and the portrait. Again, this is, this is just biblical picture here. The language and the portrait that we're given here is a picture of unfaithfulness. The term in the Ten Commandments for this is adultery. So we have this portrait that's continually being painted. We see it in we see it in, in Jeremiah, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Hosea, and we see it in Isaiah. We see this language where it's saying there's a this covenant union, this covenant relationship between the Holy One of Israel and His people, and the working metaphor that keeps coming back up because every culture throughout all time understands unfaithfulness. You said you would, and you don't follow through. There is a covenant relationship forsaking all others, keeping to her only as long as you both shall live. There is this union that happens 
And Israel is saying, no thanks, Holy One of Israel. And here's the tricky thing in Isaiah. The first thing that we want to draw attention to is that, did you notice there's like a bunch of worship language in there? A bunch of language about feasts and and coming in my courts and, and singing. There's all this language about worship. What's happening is they've retained the form of worship. So they're still going to worship services. They're still going to church. But, but it's hollow. He's saying, you're coming, you're singing, you're sacrificing, you're praying, and it's detestable to me. This is one of the most offensive and difficult things for us to read in Isaiah. Like This is a people who are going to worship. Like you can watch, if you just kind of watch the culture, like, well, they're going to temple. They're singing songs. They're praying prayers. They're, 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 they're performing sacrifice. Like God has asked, what's the problem? And what he's saying is, is like, look, just because you are robotically doing the external shell of what I've asked does not mean we have a healthy marriage. Just because we go to the store together, Right? and go out to do things together. And just because we are physically next to each other does not mean we have a healthy union where you're actually in relationship with me and loving me and pursuing me. We as human beings, what we love is we love, we love autopilot. We love it, right? This happened to me the other day. I'm driving home, talking to somebody. And what happened? I ended up somewhere that I wasn't driving. I was like, wait, why am I here? Why am I at the church? Because in my brain, I'm usually going to my house or to church. I was supposed to go to Jesse's house, and then I had to go, oh yeah, turn around, right? I just got an autopilot. Because if I don't have to think about it, if I don't have to put my heart in it, I, I love to do that stuff. It's easier for me. And what Yahweh says is, I didn't deliver you so that you could come into the land, so that you could go and have these great worship services and these great feasts just so that we could have worship services and have feasts. What, what, what in short is happening is Israel has made, had made their worship about their experience of it and not about their communion with their beloved. What, what does God want from us? Because there's a way to read this where it's like what He wants is He wants us to just do all this stuff. You know what He wants is He wants us. He doesn't want the trappings of good relationship. He doesn't want us to kind of look the part. He wants us. He wants us to love Him, to trust Him. You know, later in Deuteronomy where he's kind of laying down the specifics of the covenant where it's pretty intense. There's blessings, there's curses, there's all these kind of requirements of all the things you want. You're like, oh man, this, is, this looks hard. This beautiful section at the beginning of, of, of chapter 30 where he says, look, if, if this is hard and it doesn't go well and you fail, just turn to me. Just turn to me. Cry out to me. Depend on me. Cry, turn. So the first thing that we want to see in this violation, that's the second point. We have the relationship. We have the violation of the relationship. What we want to see is that they have forgotten about Him. They have made their practice and their lives and their worship and their comings and their goings about anything else. Hear me, anything else. It's about them. It's about getting what they want. It's about things going smoothly. It's about how beautiful the music is. It's about how they feel. It's about how good the feasts are. It's about, it's about, it's about, it's about. It's not about Yahweh. Hear me, church. When we follow after God, when we do these things, we're not doing them because it looks good to do them. 
We come and we gather. This is why we pray the way that we pray, is that we believe God is here and God is working and God wants you. He wants you. Relationship. Which, hear me, and this, everything has a parallel in marriage with this sermon. We are about the other person, seeing them, delighting in them, enjoying who they are. Not just the trappings of what it means to be married. Right? We're not just even producing offspring or whatever it may be. It's we want to love that specific person who has a name. And listen, God gives us each other to help us understand this. So the way that we love people is we see who they are. We figure out their needs, what's going on in them. How we love them has to do with what is going on in them. And so if we are to follow after God and delight in who He is, we need to see Him for who He is and delight in that. Some of us read about who He is and we kind of tolerate that. That's a problem, church. We need to read of this and go, this is our beloved. Now we're going to transition to the result here of this violation. and it's, it's, I'll go ahead and confess, it, it is, it's disturbing. It's like, well, man, wow. He's intense. Yeah. He is intensely jealous for his beloved. You belong to him. All the earth belongs to him. And he has a jealousy for his own so that when he sees his beloved running around, and the language here, again, this is biblical quotation, whoring themselves out to other gods, other nations, other purposes, it grieves him deeply for two reasons. One is because he sees us, he loves us, and knows what's good for us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that when he gives us a command, that he actually believes what's best for us, and that he wants us to go do what's best for us? Or do we view it as this imposition on, oh, why? Why do I have to do this thing? Instead of going, well, he knows. He, he knows what's good. So, the, so there's two things. So the violation of the covenant is we are, we are, we are uh, diverting from Him, making it not about Him. But the second thing, when that happens, when we're not connected to the source of life, when we're not connected to the, to, to the meaning of all meanings, the purpose of all purposes, the, the core of all of the cosmos, when we are not fixated on that, you know what happens? Not so strangely? Is that we stop behaving living, practicing what He intends. We become people, like in verse 17, who uh, cease to do good. We, have, we, we, we are doing evil. We're not seeking justice. We're not correcting uh, oppression. And let me change the wording a little bit at the end here, verse uh, uh, 17. Bring justice to the foster kids. Right, The fatherless in our culture. Right? pleading the widow's cause. These are those who do not have protectors. Husbands, fathers, people who lovingly pursue them, care for them. Right? That was the, this part of the institution of family that God put in place as those who steward and protect and love and serve. They don't have that. So in that culture especially, they're in deep trouble. They're able to be taken advantage of and as those who follow after the groom, we go, man, the groom is all about justice for those who are voiceless. We, if we're not connected to the source of justice, of love, 
of life, we become those who don't practice such things because we don't even value them anymore. You see what happens? So we've diverted from Yahweh. We've turned from, from delighting in Him. And when we do that, our actions follow. Because now the things that He's commanded us to, which are beautiful and good things, we don't care about. Because we're going like, why would I do that? Nobody in my world cares whether I do this or don't do this. Whether I lie or don't lie. Or whether I oppress or don't oppress. Or whether I sleep with this person or don't sleep with this person. None of these people care. So I guess not. I guess we start doing that. And then what happens is confusion ensues, which is why there's a result. Because we live in a world, right, where we hear, we hear this phrase. This is the American mantra of 2020 and has been for some time. You do you. Right? You do you. And what we mean by that is, look, I, I mean, I'm not to judge. So you do what makes you happy. You go after what you want. And the way the scriptures describe that is they did what was right in their own eyes is the biblical way of saying you do you. Right? So we see the relationship, which is this picture of the Holy One of Israel. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then we see His people, Israel. We see this relationship between the two. Then we see this accusation. This really is a uh, one-way, one uh, theologian, our friend uh, Dr. Yates, describes this first as the covenant lawsuit, where he's basically saying, you have violated the covenant. So we see the violation, and really it's boiled down to the second half of verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They basically have seen the pursuit, seen the love, seen all that's been offered to them. They said, eh, I got some better ideas for how this should operate. So what's the result? Because the way, we, the way we function in our culture is when we see that, what we do is we kind of go, hey, well, you know. So, so another mantra that goes with you do you is, it is what it is. It is what it is. Do you think? Uh, Yahweh don't roll like that. Yahweh is the one who actually sets how it is and how it's going to be. So as the Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy One of Israel, the one which we described holiness as, yes, moral purity, of course, but not primarily. He is the unique, beautiful one in all of existence. What happens when we forsake relationship with the unique, beautiful one of all of, the, of life and the cosmos? When we forsake that and turn away from that, it's not just a, oh, well, we decided to practice worship differently. We are turning from the very source of life and the consequences are catastrophic. And you're about to see what, what we have here. Turn to chapter 2. So really what I'm preaching this morning, just so you know, is chapters 1 through 5, a summarization of the content there. We're going to start in verse 5. So we have the relationship, Yahweh and His people. We have the violation, which is uh, uh, Israel despising the Holy One, really turning away. Uh, unfaithfulness infidelity. They've decided to go after other loves. Which again, every other love, if it ain't Yahweh, is every other love. Doesn't matter what it is. All of them fall short of the glory of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. So verse 5, this is the result. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now this is, this is what Yahweh is doing. 
For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of the things from the east and the fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, against, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter into the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, the moles and to the, from the moles to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rock and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is He? This is the Word of the Lord. Alright, we went straight Old Testament on you right there. Right? This is the Bible. This is our beloved who does this. He rises to terrify the earth. Man, what do we think about this language? Can I confess, often when I read this language, I think it's strange and I think it's uncomfortable and I kind of go, I don't like this. Man. You know why I don't like it? Because it terrifies me. You notice the, the repeating? Now, if you caught it last week, when I said any time in Hebrew literature, when we see the trifecta, holy, holy, holy. I don't know if you noticed, but that phrase, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth three times, right? What's the result? What's the result of our sin when we turn away from the beautiful loving covenant that we have been offered. And here's, here's the phrase that just rings in my ears. Right? Because we, we, we're, we're, we love our, our little democratic system we got going on. Right? We have this phrase in our legal system, which is, which is a good phrase, but I always bring it to bear in these kinds of things. Right? Um, you shall not have a punishment right, that is unfit for the crime committed. And here's my thing. When, when, when I read of these things, you know what I think about my own sin often? What's the big deal? I mean, come on. Like, all of the human race fell because Eve ate an apple? Like, that just seems 
Really? Can we, can we be honest? Isn't that our disposition often? When we think about our sin or we even look at the sin of maybe someone we care about, we say, well, you know, what's the big deal? It's not that bad. Which, which is a confession about how we view the Holy One of Israel. It's a confession about how we view the nature of existence, that we think we can go about using people for our own ends and say to, to everyone, it's not that big a deal. I mean, we're all doing it after all. I just want to encourage this church that God's standard is not our standard. His ways are not our ways. And so when the Holy One of Israel says, you are living in a way that is oppressing the poor, that is, that is not bringing justice, we can't just say, what's the big deal? That is literally exactly what is happening and exactly what he's rebuking. That the ways of man, the ways we think, the ways we understand, what we want and how we think it should go is the, is the metric that we want to use. This whole passage, I don't know if you heard it, the whole point was the loftiness of man being brought low. And how often we are to uh, remove ourselves from that lofty ideal. He's saying, no, it, it has to be, we are underneath of the Holy One saying, you define existence. You are the source and arbiter of truth. When I am confused, you are not. This is why he gives us commands about how to love our neighbor. We see these lists about things we shouldn't partake in. Lust and stealing and lying and these different things. Because those things damage and cause death. And yet we think, what's the big deal? So a couple of things. So the way one word we use for this right, is judgment. He is bringing judgment. A couple of definers. I wanted to nuance this a little bit. Judgment. So a couple of words. Judgment, correction, discipline, consequences. Fun words. Right? Judgment, discipline, correction, and consequences. I think I got the order wrong, but you get the idea. So what I want to say is you have judgment is the broad idea. Correction, discipline, consequences fall underneath of judgment. Okay? So when we talk about God judging, the ways that He will do that will look like correction, discipline, which those two are very similar, and consequences. Meaning, there will be things that you do, like you reap what you sow is this biblical concept, that if you live a certain way, you will produce a certain kind of outcome from that. That is, that is a natural law that God has put in place so that if you live foolishly, you will reap foolishness and you will reap death. Because living stupidly means you will live a stupid life and you will have stupid things done to you and you'll have stupid things around you. That, that's just literally the, the reaping and sowing of that. So that's consequence. But what we're looking at is God is going to bring judgment on his people and what he's doing is he is bringing correction. So there's three ways correction plays out. Cor correction has three motives. First is to remove. To remove. So when you have cancer, you have to be very invasive. You don't just see it and go, oh, man, look at that. Killing everything around it. Oh, let's see, let's see how this goes. No, right? This is just an agreed upon practice. We see it and we go, we deal with this as quickly, as thoroughly as we possibly can. We remove this from our midst because if this is in our midst, we will have unhealth. Sin is a cancer. It kills everything it touches. It's bad for us. It's bad for others. The irony with, 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 with sin is we enjoy it. 
That's why we do it usually. But it kills. So the first motive of judgment, listen, God, God has no desire to just be a meanie for meanness sake. God always has an end game. And it's always good. Right? His majesty and his glory and his wonder will always be brought to bear, even in judgment. So the first motive of judgment, the first motive of this correction is to remove. Is that he wants to take these cancers, and what I mean by cancers is the ways that we are living that cause death. He wants to remove that from our midst. Hear me. He would love, and he is asking continually for us to do that of our own choice. My kids, stop hitting your sister. I just like doing it, Dad. It's fun. Oh, look at that. I, I just love doing it, Dad. Right? Well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give him a few chances to do it willfully, and if he doesn't, you know what I'm going to do? By force, I'm going to say, okay, well, then we're going to suppress your will here because you are continuing to perpetrate evil. So hear me. He's inviting us to do it of our own accord. But if we don't, he will do his work, and this is what's happening in a lot of these prophets. God's been very gracious. Oftentimes there's decades upon decades upon decades, sometimes centuries that are passing, and he's saying, please turn, please turn, please stop hurting your neighbor, please stop hurting your neighbor, please stop hurting your neighbor, please, 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 would you stop, would you stop, would you stop? And they go, eh, yeah, it's fine. I mean, you didn't do anything last time, what are you going to do? Right, that's, that's kind of how we behave often. Well, I got away with it last time. So we either turn by choice or he will force it upon us at times because he's a good God. Because he is what? We talked about this in the beginning. He's the judge. He's the seated judge who has the rightful place to correct all of that. Okay, so. Lost my notes. So he is removing is motive one. I got a motor here. Oh, it's upside down. Okay, he's removing motive one. He's reestablishing. So he removes, gets the, the cancer from out from, from within. He's reestablishing, meaning he is setting his people as the people so that they can, people can look upon them and go, oh, that's what a holy people look like. So he's reestablishing his purpose, plan, witness, glory, holiness, all of that. So he removes the cancer, he brings health. So he's reestablishing. And then third, he's restoring, meaning he's setting all things right. So he's, he's reestablishing, delineating his last two points. He's reestablishing, meaning he is setting his people back as the place that they should be, as the rightful diamond among all the nations, precious jewels that shine to everyone else. But then he's restoring, meaning he has this long end game of redemption in mind. So those obviously overlap but are related. So last two things here. So judgment has correction and it has a pointing. It has a correcting and it has a pointing. And what this is pointing to is that man are we in trouble and man do we need rescue and man do we need more help than we ever dreamed we ever needed. We cannot do this on our own no matter how much we try. Century after century after century in all the grace and all the pursuit of the Holy One of Israel. We need rescue. And so what this points to is that he's pointing to Isaiah 53 and all the other passages in Isaiah. There's tons of them which says he is going to send one. Because here's the thing, we, we, we hear the commands of God and we go, I see that these are good, but man, this is hard. How do I do this? He is sending one who will both take on our sin, the ways in which you and I hurt others on purpose. He's going to take that on himself. The penalty of sin, he will take on himself 
on Calvary, Jesus will bear our sin. And, and, and Isaiah points specifically to that, that that's coming, that we are adulterers who turn from our beloved and pursue other lovers because it's good for us and we enjoy it and we have ideas of what we think should happen and we don't like how God does things. And God is saying, turn from all that. And the ultimate turn from all that is He says, turn to Jesus. It's pointing for our need for that. And it's also pointing to our fulfillment that Jesus, once He dies, gives us the power to fulfill the commands of God. Right, this is the, the kind of the, the climax of the story of redemption when we get to the Scriptures as we get to the sending of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God in Acts 2, that we are given power from on high to fulfill what it means to be connected to the Holy One of Israel that God has been planning for all time. So by the time Jesus comes, we know we really, really, really need Him. Yeah. So, my question for us, is what does it look like to live life connected to the Holy One? We're going to keep asking that question. To live life connected to Him, to be those who enact justice, to be those who live out the ways of God and the character of God. How do we enact what God has called us and even empowered us by His Spirit to enact? Have we exalted ourselves to a place to say, I I got this. I can do this. Or have we rightfully positioned ourselves underneath of Him saying, Lord, I need from You. Teach me how to do this. Because God, and hear me, church, God is still disciplining those that He loves. He disciplines believers. Meaning, if you want to persist in sin, He will make your life more difficult because He loves you. Now, the beautiful thing is Jesus pays our penalty of sin. Right? So there's no condemnation. You cannot be condemned, another word in there. You cannot be condemned to hell anymore once you believe upon Christ. But I will say, if we are living in relationship with God and our lives don't look any different, then we really want to wrestle with, is the Holy One living in us? And we got to wrestle with that. But God is covering our sin by the work of Christ and correcting those that He loves. Alright, well, there's plenty more to come in Isaiah. So, we get to talk about judgment and correction and all that as we unfold this book, which is a healthy, good thing for us as those who follow after the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are constantly pursuing Your bride. You are constantly, though we have forsaken You, though we have sinned against You, You are constantly working to make things right. You are calling to us to turn and to trust and to rest in You, to find our life in You. Constantly You are doing the work of justice. Even when we don't like it, Lord, we praise You that You are always working to set things right. God, would You help us to be those who work in concert with your work of justice, with your work of mercy in this world, that we would offer what we have been offered, the grace that comes by the work of Christ, that we would be an inviting people, a pursuing people, a serving people. God, help us to walk in holiness. 
where we reflect who you are to a dying world. We need your power to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.